but I have no handout today. So some people like them, some people don't care, but I don't have one for you, so you're not getting one. But what I want you to do is turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11. I had mentioned several, several, several weeks ago that when we finished up our study of the Holy Spirit, um, my plan was to either do the larger catechism or to begin a series of Sunday school lessons with a title and with a theme, what does it mean? And seeking to just answer some of the common questions that uh, come up in discussion uh, before and after services uh, in connection to various doctrinal points, etc. And so we're, we're beginning that today with this theme of what does it mean. And so as I put that out there as a, a potential for what we would be doing in Sunday school for the next little bit, uh, I asked for you to come and ask me questions and ask me what does such and such mean. And overwhelmingly, the first question had to do with the topic and the subject of head coverings. And so here we go. Put your seatbelts on, and we will not finish this today by any stretch, because I really want to give the passage justice, and I really want to dig into the issues, uh, the arguments, the objections, the whys, the wherefores, the what in the world do we mean by all this, why do we do this, uh, why does our church teach this. Most of you don't know of another congregation in this city that practices head coverings. I don't know if there is another congregation in Winston-Salem that practices head coverings. Uh, You might not know of another church on planet Earth that practices head coverings, Uh, only to tell you that there are many that do. Um, We're not the only ones. But why do we do it? And why do so many vehemently argue against it? Like, they were belligerent, and in your face will argue against this practice. And so why do we maintain this practice? And we have to look at 1 Corinthians 11. It is the passage of Scripture that deals with this, Uh, One of the main arguments is that, well, there's only one place in Scripture, and it's a difficult passage to understand anyway, and so why are you hanging your hat on this one obscure, you know, whatever, passage of Scripture? I made a pun, and I didn't even realize it. I saw you two smiling, I was like, maybe y'all had a private conversation, and then I realized I said, hang your hat on, and yeah, sorry. Okay, I didn't mean to do that, but hey, that's how good I am at puns. I do them without even knowing. Um, but why do, we, why do we rest on this passage of Scripture if it's the only thing, and it's a difficult one? Uh, why do we maintain this practice? So let's read uh, 1 Corinthians 11, the relevant verses. Chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 11, verse 1. Uh, there's actually an unfortunate chapter division. Verse 1 is actually the conclusion of chapter 10. And so we need to start at verse number 2 for the argument, and we'll read down through to the end of verse number 16. So these are the relevant verses that we need to deal with here. Okay? 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things, and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, 
and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, dishonoreth her head. For that is even all as that is even all one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, forasmuch as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Judge in yourselves. Is it not comely that a woman pray to God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. So there we go. That's the end of verse 16. And really the passage is self-explanatory, and I don't need to say anything else. Right? It's very very clear, right? We're done, right? Well, I wish it was that easy. Uh, turn with me back to chapter 7. And this is one thing we have to establish right off the bat with this. And I'm going to have you flip a few pages as we go here. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. So this is an obvious transition in the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul says, Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, colon, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And so, what's going on in chapter 7, verse 1, like I said, is an obvious transition in the passage, or in the book, in, in Paul's argument. And Paul now is going to begin to address certain things that the Corinthian church had obviously asked him about. Paul received a letter, this is what makes sense here, Paul received some letter from Corinth, uh, wrote me about these things, And so I'm going to begin to address these things. And so what he is addressing is matters that directly relate to church life and issues in the church, doctrinal situations involved in the church. Now, it's very important for us to understand that in the whole context because one of the main objections is that what Paul is dealing with here in 1 Corinthians 11 about head coverings is just merely something that was a cultural phenomenon in Corinth. Well, we can't argue that because the context demands otherwise. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul's dealing with the subject of marriage. If you go over to chapter 8, you see it begins with the word now. So now Paul is addressing a new subject. And really from chapter 8, verse 1, all the way to chapter 11, verse 1, he deals with a grand topic of Christian liberty. 
He deals with that in Romans 14 as well in another place. Um, deals with some of it in 2 Corinthians again. But he deals with the subject of Christian liberty. And so this is a church issue again. And now he comes to chapter 11, and he begins chapter 11 dealing with the issue of public worship, this praying or prophesying. We'll get to that in just a moment. And so that part of, of the worship of God's people, and then starting in verse number 17, he begins to deal with the subject of the Lord's table. Now, nobody takes the Lord's table as a cultural issue that was unique to Corinth. Everybody acknowledges the rest of 1 Corinthians 11 to be a larger body of Christ uh, church issue. Um, So it doesn't make sense to have this local cultural thing and then this whole wide church thing. Um, And then also we'll come to verse number 16 uh, toward the end later, but uh, in verse number 16, he specifically mentions the churches, plural, of God. So he, he's talking about the broader body of Christ in this context. Well, then you come to chapter 12. Again, you see the word now, beginning that. So another topic. He deals with the subject of spiritual gifts through the entirety of chapter 12. Chapter 13 is that famous chapter on love but still we could relate that with the idea and the the subject of spiritual gifts. Coming to chapter 14, um, in chapter 14, really beginning at the beginning of verse 1 to verse 25, he deals with the subject of prophecy, preaching, and speaking in tongues. And then the end of chapter 14, starting in verse number 26, He deals with the subject of orderly conduct during worship. And so we have this entire section from chapter 7, verse 1, to chapter 14, verse 40, all dealing specifically with issues in the church. None of the things that he deals with in this whole section, anybody else argues that they were local, cultural things unique to Corinth. The only time they want to play that card is when they get to the beginning of chapter 11 and say, oh, no, this little carved out section, it was only relevant to Corinth. It doesn't have any relevance for anybody else, especially for us today, 2,000 years later. And so Paul's not dealing with this cultural phenomenon. It's not a Corinth thing. It's not a Roman Empire thing. It's a larger church thing. And so, now we have to get into the passage itself and how we analyze exactly what Paul is saying. So, he introduces this subject in verse 2, Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things. And it, it makes sense to take that idea of remembering in front of keep, and you remember to keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. Now, I want to, so that I know what I need to say, how many of you have in your lap something other than a King James Bible? Don't be embarrassed. Okay, so ESV? You have the CSB? ESV? And you have the New King James. Okay, well that's going to be relevant here in a minute too. Okay, so the CEB I'm not positive about. Um, does yours say tradition instead of ordinance? Yeah. So 
and yours says, uh, the ESV says tradition, and the New King James says ordinance or tradition? Verse 2, 11-2. Does it say ordinance or tradition? Tradition in the New King James as well. Okay, So that is the word. It is a tradition, uh, but not a tradition in the sense of, you know, you open presents on Christmas Eve. That's my family's tradition. Um, it's not that kind of thing necessarily. The word that's translated here as ordinance in the King James is a word that has the idea of a tradition that has been passed down from generation to generation. Now, the point, and regardless of the translation, the translation doesn't matter, the point is this is not something new that Paul has come up with. This is an old practice, regardless whether your, your Bible that you're looking at says ordinance or if it says tradition, it's an old practice. It's something that has existed for generations. And Paul says, you remember these things as I delivered them to you. Now, Paul, the, uh, the teacher of the New Testament, um, the epistle writer, the teacher of doctrine of the New Testament, uh, the one who put doctrine to paper, uh, that gave instructions to the church, uh, Paul delivered these truths. Um, we, we've already dealt with this a, a long time ago when we have dealt with uh, matters of inspiration and that kind of thing. There are things that Paul communicated to the churches that we don't have. Now, that doesn't bother us. We're not worried about that. We're not digging in caves trying to find missing inspired writings that's not our view of inspiration. That's not our view of preservation and the authority of God's word. God has preserved for us in between these two leather covers and the leather covers you have on your lap or in your phone, whatever, everything that we need. God has preserved his word. We're not missing inspired documents anywhere. We're not looking for any new inspired documents. Uh, we know for sure that there was a letter to the Laodiceans we don't have a letter to the Laodiceans, but we don't need a letter to the Laodiceans. And whatever he said to them, it doesn't matter because he didn't say anything contrary to what we already have. Now, somehow, Paul had communicated something to the Corinthian church before he wrote 1 Corinthians. Now, he communicated a body of truth and doctrine and how the church should work and what you people should be doing on Sundays, etc., that was written down or, or said in person or said through a messenger or whatever. We don't know, but it happened. And he had given these instructions somewhere before, somehow, in, in some form. We don't have them, but they're not different than what he communicates here. So this is how he introduces this. And then verse 3, he says that I would, um, but I would have you know. And so there's something very specific that he wants to communicate here. And he is communicating an aspect of headship, an aspect of authority, and an aspect of structure among God's people and in general, okay? So uh, what we're going to be looking at here, just a very, very broad outline, 
is we're going to be looking at the actual teaching of the passage. That's verses 3 to 6. And then starting in verse 7, Paul is going to give us spiritual reasons that support this teaching. So that's from 7 to verse 12. And then in verse 13, 14, 15, he's going to be giving us reasons from nature, natural reasons, as to why uh, this teaching from verse 3 to 6 is authoritative. And so verse 3 really is the basis of the authority for what Paul is going to communicate here. And Paul bases his authority for this teaching on, primarily on the headship of God. And so in the King James it says, but I would have you know, if you're looking at another translation, you might have the word realize or you might have the word understand. It might be translated either of those ways, but it's the same idea. I would have you realize, I would have you understand something. And so this is what he wants them to understand, that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. So that's what verse 3 is telling us here. And so he's setting down the relationship of men to Christ. He's also setting down the relationship, and be very careful here, of wives to husbands and of Christ to God. And so in verse 3, do any of the other translations that you're looking at have husband and wife instead of man and woman? They all say man and woman. So the Greek word in verse 3 is the word that is translated as husband and wife that we have in verse number 3. And so he is giving that order of relationships and how all that fits together. And one of the key words we have to understand is this word head. And so you see he uses that three different times. The head of the man is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Well, that word head, it's used 76 times in the New Testament, translated sometimes literally as head, you know, this round thing at the top of your body, head, but it's more often used in a figurative sense. So John the Baptist had his head taken off, and that's literally his head, Um, but it's used more in the figurative sense of a ruler, a chief, or a ruler. And so if we read it in that sense, Christ is the ruler of every man, and the husband is the ruler of his wife. This verse does not teach us that men rule over women. That's not what this passage is teaching at all. It's not that every woman is subject to every man, but a wife is subject to her husband. The husband is the ruler of his wife, not somebody else's wife, just his own. And then God is the ruler of Christ. And so the entire context of verse 3 is one of order and one of subordination. And so if we think of it in a different sense, the wife is under the man, the man is under Christ, and Christ is under God. Now we're not dealing with any issues of deity of Christ and all that business. That's all we're talking about. And we've dealt with deity of Christ and we've, we've talked about those things before. But the wife is under, in in subjection to the man, the man is in subjection to Christ, and then Christ in subjection, in that sense, to God. 
And so verse 4 gets into the main body of teaching. This is what Paul is communicating. And here's, here's the thing we have to wrestle with. Every man, praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. Now who is his head? Verse 3 told us, who is the head that is being dishonored? Jesus, Christ, right? So his head, now there is, there is an issue here we have to wrestle with. Does it mean his own head? Or does it mean his head that's the reference back there in verse number 3? And there's going to be some disagreements on that. I take it to be the head listed in verse number 3. He dishonors Christ who is his head. Verse 5, but every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head. Now, here it is explicit. Here we don't have the option of trying to figure out is it talking about her own head or is it talking about her head being the man dishonoring her husband because the Greek is explicit. It is her own head. So in verse 4, the Greek is not explicit. Does the man dishonor his own head, or does this, the man dishonor Christ, who is his head? And that is left for interpretation. Fair enough. But in verse 5, the Greek text does not leave it to interpretation. The, the, the pronouns, the, the way the Greek is, is clear. The woman dishonors her own head. It's not that she's dishonoring her husband, she is dishonoring herself, is what verse 5 is telling us. Because it's just as if she had her head completely shaved. That's the dishonor. That's the same level of dishonor that she brings on herself, is what verse 5 is telling us. Now, the elephant in the room, verse 4 and 5. What does it mean, praying or prophesying? That really, regardless of how you come to this, you have to wrestle with that. What does that mean? What does it mean praying or prophesying? Let me read you from John Gill. So most of you will be familiar with this, with this name. This is what John Gill says, and I just read this as information. So John Gill says, This is to be understood of praying and prophesying in public and not in private and not to be restrained to the person that is the mouth of the congregation to God in prayer, or who preaches to the people in the name of God, but to be applied to every individual person that attends public worship, that joins in prayer with the minister, and hears the word preached by him. So this is what John Gill says, and that interpretation of praying and prophesying is really how historically the Free Presbyterian Church has taken this passage. This is how we, since our founding and, and since this has been a thing, have interpreted what praying and prophesying means. Now, if, if you've studied this before on your own and you, you've talked to different people and, and we've had conversations, I've had conversations with some of you about this whole thing, there are some that take a different view of this praying and prophesying and they view it more in the, in the strict, formal sense of it. And so, for example, uh, the, if a woman is playing the piano, she's, 
she's not praying, neither is she prophesying, but the argument would be she is uh, helping to facilitate the singing, the, the public worship, and, and so therefore she is publicly in the front of the congregation. That person, if it's a woman, ought to have her head covered. If a woman is singing a solo, she is in a sense prophesying uh, through song, uh, and she is to have her head covered. Uh, if a missionary, a woman missionary comes and is giving a missionary report and she's standing here or at a pulpit, then that woman would be prophesying, whatever, um, and therefore she ought to have her head covered. Um, now, would you have a situation where a woman in a church is in the front leading in prayer? Uh, perhaps maybe there would be some that would, but to be consistent, that woman would have to have her head covered. Um, I know of one particular church that that is their policy. It's a church in Greenville um, that their policy is any uh, woman who is on the platform, basically. So whether it be the choir, singing a solo, playing an instrument of any kind, doing anything that is publicly to facilitate the worship uh, and, and engaged in that way in any way, that woman is required by the church to wear a head covering. Um, but the women in the pew are not, and that's their church's policy. But they are wrestling with what this means. They are recognizing that praying or prophesying in 1 Corinthians 11, it does at least mean something. Now, the Mennonites, we take a, a whole different perspective here, the Mennonites come to praying and prophesying, and they take it all the way to uh, the extreme degree of this that Paul says that uh, a Christian is to pray without ceasing. And so, therefore, a woman is to be always in a spirit and attitude of prayer, and therefore, if she's in a spirit and attitude of prayer, then she has to have her head covered. And so they would take this outside of the realm of public worship, and they would apply it to all of life. Now, I think the problem with that is what Paul is dealing with contextually, starting in chapter 7 all the way to the end of chapter 14, is not private. All of what he's dealing with, he's dealing with from the context of the church. Um, I even have, I don't know what kind of Bible you have, but I have one of these things at the top here, rules for divine worship, right? And then here of the Lord's Supper, and my chapter 11 starts here. And so that's just an editor's note, it doesn't amount to anything. But the point, you understand what I'm saying. This is not private. The idea here is there's some aspect of public worshiping that is going on. And so our denomination has always interpreted this from the perspective of the public worship of the church. Now, that all by itself could be up for some level of debate, uh, and I believe some level of charity. And so if you've been in our church for any length of time, you know that uh, at weddings, free Presbyterian weddings, we view those as worship services, and the women wear head coverings. Um, funerals, that's one a little bit more 
debatable. Is that a worship service? Is that not a worship service? Um, you know, our Wednesday night prayer meetings, when they were here together and we were all in the same room, then, you know, is, is that a worship service? We're singing, we're praying, we're reading the Bible, and we're preaching. Well, that's what you do in a worship service. We have all those things in a worship service. Well, we had a little um, anomaly. We, we stopped meeting publicly together in the same room for our prayer meetings, and we started meeting by Zoom. The very first Wednesday night Zoom service, and I, I, please, I'm not saying this in a critical way. I'm saying this simply by way of observation and by way of illustration. In the very first Zoom prayer meeting, there was only one lady in our church that had a head covering on. Maybe I'm so legalistic that I noticed such a thing, but I noticed such a thing. And Pastor Kimbrough and I talked about that thing. And, you know, we're not together, but we are together, kind of, sort of, on the internet. And so now, at our prayer meeting, nobody, I don't think anybody said anything to anybody, but now on Zoom, I think basically all the ladies do wear a head covering. Um, is that a worship service? I think there's some level of interpretation there that can be had. Um, we have youth meetings. Uh, we have a youth Bible study. We had a youth Christmas party. And Jim brought a devotional at the youth Christmas party. Is that public worship? Should all of the teenage girls put a head covering on during that youth Bible study? You ladies meet for ladies' meetings, your, your book studies, your ladies' prayer times, whatever. I think it's your practice. You ladies don't wear head coverings at those meetings. There are no men present at those meetings. And so it's not a worship service. It's a Bible study. Now, there's some gray as to where we, where we decide we want to draw this line of what is a worship service, what is not a worship service, and you know, we, we can have some charity. Is Sunday school a worship service? Do you have to wear a head covering during Sunday school? Or do you only have to put it on when church starts? Right? Should you wear it during the pre-service prayer meeting that we have in the other room? Right? There's a lot of questions. There's a lot of difficulties. And I'm very happy to acknowledge the fact that there's a decent amount of gray area here that is worth wrestling through and, and worth coming to an understanding on. But coming back from that, understanding that this praying or prophesying has a degree of interpretation to it, and, and good people are going to disagree as to how far to take that, considering the fact that the whole passage is dealing with the issue ultimately of submission to authority, well, we all submit to our authority. In a sense, whether we like it or not, we submit to our authority. And our denomination has, has defined certain things maybe more clearly than others, um, but it is what it is, right? This is the way we understand this passage of praying or prophesying. 
we, we don't limit it to those actively being, as Gil says, the mouth of the congregation, um, but we take it as all those who are gathered in present, all participating together in worship of the Lord. So we interpret that praying or prophesying really to be public worship. And so this is what we do. Uh, The act of covering one's head is an act of submission to another visible authority. Um, We're going to run out of time. No way to get finished with this. But um, just as an example of that, uh, that will be very easy for you to remember in Isaiah 6, the seraphim there where they were before the Lord. Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in the seraphims, and they had all these wings, and they covered their face in the presence of God. And there's that aspect of uh, a recognition of humility before the one who is your authority. And that's part of the context and part of what's uh, being brought on here. And in the public worship, uh, this is a big statement, and this is going to be explained. I'm going to drop this bomb on you, um, but we'll, we'll deal with this not next week because I'll be gone. I'll leave you hanging for two weeks, and then I'll come back. Um, but in the public worship service, the man has no visible authority present. Now, Christ is present, obviously, and the head of the man is Christ. But in the public worship service, the man has no visible authority present. And for him to participate in public worship with his head covered dishonors that head. And again, the interpretation, is it his own personal head or is he dishonoring Christ by not wearing or by having his head covered? And I take it to be that he dishonors Christ who is his head. And so for a man to have a head covering on, this passage doesn't deal only with women wearing head coverings. This passage just as equally deals with men not wearing head coverings. Um, There was a practice uh, both among the Romans and uh, among some of the Jews, and well, the Greeks, but a, a practice among the Romans in their pagan worship that the men would cover their heads in their worship of their pagan gods. Um, there's much uh, art uh, depicted from the time period, sculptures and things depicted from the time period. Um, the men wore dresses, right? Um, and they would pull up their their thing up over their head. Um, think hoodie, but not a hoodie, but that kind of thing. But they would, they would pull that up over their head during their worship. Now, Paul is telling them, you're not, if anything's cultural here, you're not to imitate what's going on around you. You're, the men are not to cover their head. There were, uh, you know, pagans that had been saved, such were some of you, in this church that would have done that previously in their worship. And Paul's telling them that's not what we do in, in Christian churches. Men don't cover their head. And for a man to have a head covering on during worship is, in essence, to deny the position of authority that God has given him in the church. Now, when I say that, I don't mean just the pastor or the deacons and the elders a position of authority in the church, but I mean a husband in his home 
has a position of authority in the church. I will very briefly cross-reference a passage um, that I think you're familiar with that Paul teaches that if a woman has a question before she goes to the elder or to to the minister, she is to ask her own husband because her own husband has a level of authority over her. I know of a preacher that taught us at Bob Jones in Preacher Boys class, whether you agree with this practice or not, whether you agree with the wisdom of this practice or not, his standard practice is if a woman comes to him after a church service and asks him a question about the sermon, he tells her to go and discuss it with her husband, and he does not answer her. Now, take that for what it is, but he's wrestling with what in the world did Paul mean by that when he said that, that a woman is to ask her husband. So every man has a level of authority in the church, in his home, but all these homes together are making up a church. Right? So um, you know, part of our thinking is so disconnected from the truth of Scripture that these things sound very weird to most people. But I didn't make that up. I mean, it's not my idea. It's what God says. It's what the Bible says. I'm just reporting to you what what God says. And so there's a sense in which that man that has his head covered is dishonoring Christ because he is dressing like his inferior. And I use that word inferior not in a bad sense but he's dressing like his inferior is supposed to dress. And he's going to round out this argument when he comes to the end about this long hair, short hair business and a man not having long hair and a woman not having short hair. Uh, There are are gender distinctions that are at play that that are involved here that have to be maintained. Um, But verse 4 is arguing that for that man to have his head covered during worship is to act as if he were a woman. Right? That, that's, that's substantively, that's very interpretive, but that's substantively, substantively um, what Paul has said here in verse 4. So I was hoping to get through to verse 10, so no way. Um, we're going to stop here uh, with all the questions that you have, and we will pick this back up, and we will... Deal with all of this, the whole thing, um, so that we come to an understanding of exactly what is being communicated here. uh, And deal with, there's a lot more objections, there's a lot more questions, uh, a lot more things to wrestle with. But uh, Lord willing, this will be very profitable for us all uh, to give us an understanding of what we do and why we do it. Uh, It's it's very important to not merely go through the motions, um, but to really understand why and wherefore of Uh, what we're doing and why we believe what we believe and why we practice what we practice. So, Lord willing, this will be very helpful for us all.